The title of my message today is Winsome Radicals. And I heard this term as I was studying this portion of Scripture this last week. And this term is used by some scholars to describe what first century followers of Jesus were like. They, they are called winsome radicals. And I love this term. These followers of Jesus were radicals. They stopped at nothing to spread the gospel across the known world despite being tortured, and some of them even killed. And they fearlessly shared the message of Jesus, despite what it would mean to their reputations in their very lives. They were radicals. But, may, but today, many radicals that we see today are pretty cynical and angry people. I don't know about you, but when we see a radical on the street corner, I think of the person on the street corner uh, with a bullhorn and a cardboard sign that says, Turn or burn! Uh, repent, the end is near, and we drive by thinking, that dude is radical. That guy is, is, seems a little angry. And oftentimes we think of radicals as being kind of cynical or angry people, and their messages are usually disregarded because of their disagreeable dispositions. And, and uh, you may think of, uh, of that man on the street corner, or you may think of radical political positions, and I'm using these two examples to, to indicate what some people would say are radical. But we would maybe, if we think of the word radical, we think of like uh, the far left. Or we think of the Black Lives Matter organization. Or we think of the hyper-conservatives who, who stormed the Capitol. We're like, man, those people are radical. They're far on the left or the right. This isn't a political message, by the way. So everybody, uh, don't just calm down if your political, uh, your political gauges are going. This is not a political message. I'm using these two uh, groups as examples of what we might consider to be radical. You know, when I was a senior in high school, uh, I attended a conference in Southern California. And on one of the days of the conference, they encouraged the students to go out into the city and to pray for people. And so I, with some friends of mine, we went into the city. And uh, I found, I saw this gentleman walking towards me, and he had this big limp in his step. And I stopped him and I said, sir, uh, do, you mind, uh, do you mind if I ask uh, what happened to your leg and why you have a limp? And he said, well, I was in a car accident when I was younger and I had surgery and now one of my legs is uh, severely shorter than the other. And I said, wow, that's so interesting. I said, do you mind if I, I pray for you? you mind if I, can I pray for you? And he goes, no, I don't want you praying for me. And I was sure that he was going to say yes. So I was surprised and I was like, oh, uh, why don't you want me to pray for you? And he goes, well, I don't know who you pray to. I said, well, I, I pray to Jesus. I believe that, that Jesus is, is God. He's the Lord of all. And he goes, oh, so you're a Christian, huh? Well, tell me, what day, what day do you go to church? I said, I go to church on Sunday. He goes, oh, then you're not a Christian. The Bible clearly says that Christians go to, go to, the real Christians go to church on Saturday. And I went, oh, uh, I've never read that before in the Bible. That's really interesting. And I was kind of confused and and uh, he starts walking away, and uh, as this zealous senior in high school who's determined to see a healing, who's determined to pray for somebody, I didn't just let that guy walk away. He's trying to hobble away from me, and I'm going, sir, come back here. Come back here. I'm going to pray for you. And he's like, get away from me. And I'm like, get over here. You know, I, to that guy, I was probably considered radical. This dude is psycho. He's, he's, I probably seemed a little angry to him. I probably seemed a little too zealous and this is oftentimes what we think of radicals when we hear the word radicals and for many people today's radicals they're not attractive 
The messages they promote are ignored because of the way that they're delivered. But for the church in Acts, followers of Jesus were radical, and at the same time, they were winsome. Their characters and their demeanors were appealing and attractive because they exuded love and joy and grace and service to others. It was something that people saw and they wanted. They probably thought, wow, that is a hard message to hear. Those people are radical, but they're also so kind and compassionate and loving. And I'm, I'm curious. I want to know more. And like the followers of Jesus in Acts, we, we are called today to become winsome radicals. Radical in our faith, radical in sharing the gospel, willing to go to any length to fearlessly share the gospel with people. And at the same time, we are called to be winsome, to exude joy, to exude love and service to others in a way that our messages are heard and received by people. And they don't perceive us as angry, cynical followers of Jesus. And today we're going to look at a winsome radical in Acts chapter 6 and 7 whose name was Stephen. And first, we're going to read the story of Stephen, and we're going to examine his argument to the religious leaders. And then we're going to look at what it means to be a winsome radical and the impact that that has on the world around us when we are like Stephen. So at the start of, chapter, of Acts 6, let me give you some context. At the, at the start of Acts 6, the number of disciples were increasing, and the original 12 disciples who were... Uh, the uh, 11 that Jesus selected, but then they cast lots for a 12th, Matthias, to replace Judas. I find that so funny, by the way. This is a side note, that they cast lots for the 12th disciple. It's just curious to me. It's, it's, so, it's so funny. That's not to say go out and gamble today because that's holy. Uh, but uh, that was a joke, by the way. But the, the original 12 disciples, they noticed that the needs of the widows were being overlooked. And so they appointed seven men who were full of the spirit and wisdom. And Stephen was one of the seven appointed to oversee the church's benevolence ministry. Or the, the money that was used for taking care of the widows. And he was one of the men filled with the spirit and with wisdom. And we read about him, Acts 6, verse 8 through 15. It says this, Now Stephen a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of uh, Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He was radical, but he was winsome. He had a face that was not of this world. He was in touch with something else. Stephen is on trial for blasphemy. 
Specifically, he's on trial for speaking against the temple, the holy place, and he's on trial for speaking against the law of Moses. And in no way was Stephen disloyal to Judaism any more than Jesus was disloyal to Judaism. But Stephen recognized the impact that Jesus' coming had on Judaism, that Jesus ushered in a new era by fulfilling the law of Moses, and, and, and he fulfilled the requirements of the temple. And this is how Stephen was sharing his message. And what Stephen does next is a bold prompting from the Holy Spirit. He places, he's on trial for blasphemy, but he turns around and he places the Pharisees on trial for blasphemy. That's bold. And beginning in chapter 7, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read bits and pieces of it. But beginning in chapter 7, Stephen begins this long recounting of Israel's history, and he starts with Abraham. And then in verse 9, Stephen points out that the 12 patriarchs of Israel, who were Jacob's 12 sons, they hated Joseph. They were jealous of Joseph, who was being used by God to save Israel from dying of starvation. He says this in in verse 9, chapter 7. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over the Egyptians and all of his palace. See, he's saying instead of honoring the person that God selected, God had chosen Joseph. He had chosen Joseph to speak through him, through dreams and through visions. God was using Joseph, and instead of recognizing how God was using their brother, they were jealous, and they hated him, and they rejected him. They tried to kill him before selling him into slavery. And then in verse 27, Stephen points out that the Israelites rejected Moses after God sent him to deliver them from Egypt. He says this in verse 26. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? We know the answer to that question. Who made Moses ruler and judge over them? God did. He sent them and said, You will be their deliverer. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. See, Stephen drives the point home now by reminding the religious leaders that God was the one who made Moses ruler and deliverer, but the Israelites did not recognize his divine appointment. His divine appointment. They didn't see Moses as that man, even though he was chosen by God. And he's accusing them, you rejected, your your ancestors rejected Joseph. Your ancestors rejected Moses, the people that were being used by God. And then he reminds them that Moses was the one to receive the law, who passed it on to Israel. But Israel rejected the law and disobeyed when they built this golden calf in the wilderness and they worshipped this idol instead of God. Moses was the one. These Pharisees, they revere the writings of Moses. They revere the law of Moses. And so Stephen is using the law of Moses in his argument against them. And he tells them that Moses was the one who told Israel that there was going to be a prophet like him coming. That he prophesied of the coming of the Messiah. Jesus was coming and you rejected him. Then because Stephen is on trial for speaking against the temple, he reminds the listeners That the tabernacle was God's idea. That God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle according to the pattern that he saw on Mount Sinai. But the temple was man's idea. 
That came from the heart of David. He says this in verse 45. He says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. It remained in the land until the time of David, verse 46, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all things? See, Stephan is looking at the Pharisees in this moment, and he is saying, you're more concerned with the things that are man-made rather than what comes from God. You're more concerned about what was man's idea rather than what was God's idea. Why is a building so important to you guys? Don't you know that God is too big for this little house? He's too big for this temple? And then comes the punchline. And this is where he gets really radical. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? He's talking about Joseph, Moses, John the Baptist. And then they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. Verse 53. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. So the term angels there, the law was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, but a lot of scholars believe that the term angels is, is used because of reverence and respect for the name of the Lord. That, that most, m- most people would not use uh, the name of God in normal conversation. It was too holy to use. And so a lot of scholars believe that he, he swaps it for the term angels out of reverence and respect for the name of the Lord. And then Stephan announces his verdict to the religious leaders, that they're guilty. They're guilty of disobeying the law of Moses in two areas. First, they had rejected and arranged the execution of the deliverer promised by Moses himself. And two, they had turned the temple into an idol. They're worshiping the house. They're worshiping the building instead of worshiping the God that that was supposed to reside in it long before Jesus died. And then in verse 54, it says this. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephan, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll get back to that at the end of the message. While they were stoning him, Stephan prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What does that sound familiar? He's mimicking his Savior on the cross. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Wow. I'm going to come back to that mention of Saul at the end of the message, but first I want to talk about these three arguments that Stephan is making at the Pharisees. And I I want us to see a picture that the Bible paints about Stephan and his winsome radical character. 
Stephen's three arguments are this. The first argument that he's making towards the Pharisees, number one, is that the activity of God is not confined to the geographical land of Israel. God's activity is not confined to one location. And in his argument, he, he brings up that God spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia and Haran, that he blessed Joseph in Egypt. He spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai and gave people his law there. He's trying to tell them that all of these things happen outside of this holy place, outside of this location that you so revere, that God's activity is not limited to one place. He moves all over. Now, this may be a sacred cow for some people, but I'm going to dip my tone here. Some people... I think tend to think that America is God's nation. America is God's nation. You know, America was founded on Christian principles, but it's changed. But we have this, this mentality that America is God's nation. And, and some people often apply America to even some interpretations in Revelation. They read the book and they go, oh, that's totally talking about America. That's talking about us. And to be, to be fair, I don't know. It could be. And we think that God is using America to bless the world like he used Israel to bless the world. And while that may be true in some areas, all I'm saying is that we have to be careful not to have a national or ethnocentric flavor in our theology. That we read the scripture through this lens of our nationalism. We read the scripture, whether you know it or not, there's a little bit of that national flavor in your view when, when we read the Bible. And we have to be careful not to as we read the Bible, give that, uh, allow that flavor to seep in too much. God is moving greatly across the entire globe. And in many ways, it could be argued that he's more active in other parts of the world. That God's activity is not limited to just America. It's not limited to just the church. Oftentimes, we, we separate where we have encounters with God. We have our church life. We have our family life. We have our work life. We have our hobby and, and fun life. But church is, that's where I encounter God. This is where, where we limit God's activities. When I go to church, I meet with God. Or when I'm here at this certain location, I meet with God. And the reality is, is that God wants to go with you to work. He wants to be with you in your family life. He wants you to invite him into your hobbies and your interests. He wants to teach you how to abide to remain in him everywhere you go. His activity is not limited to one location. He wants to go with you wherever you go. The second argument that Stephen is making is that worship acceptable to God is not confined to the Jerusalem temple. He mentions in his argument that the burning bush was holy ground. Moses encountered God at Sinai. The tabernacle was a suitable place of worship. These are all places of worship, you guys, that was not at the, te at the temple. That acceptable worship to God is not confined just to the temple. And Jesus opened up a new way of living with God. Now, we, we can read in the New Testament that we no longer need the temple. And Paul says that we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. That you are the house of God. That he resides in you. He lives in you. His spirit fills you. It lives in you. When Jesus died, there was this veil that separated the most holy place where God's presence was in the Ark of the Covenant. 
separated the most holy place from where the priests were. And when Jesus died, that veil was torn in two and gave everyone access into the presence of God. And now we are all called a royal priesthood. We are all priests. We all minister to the heart of God. We all have access to the throne room. We all have access to the presence of God. And the third argument that Stephen is making is that the Jews have constantly rejected God's representatives. They continually reject who God sends. He brings up the patriarchs rejecting Joseph, Moses rejected by the Israelites, and then the religious leaders rejecting John the Baptist and then eventually putting Jesus to death. We have to understand that God is still moving and he's doing new things in our world. Now, I want this, I want this to be clear. We do not surrender the authority of Scripture. We do not surrender what the Bible says. If, if you hear anything from anyone that is in contradiction with the Word of God, even if it comes from me here on the stage, it's not of God. That the, the authority of Scripture is the ultimate authority. And we have to be open at the same time while holding the authority of Scripture at the top as the pillar of our faith. While we hold that, we also have to hold it in tension with the reality that we have to be open to any changes that God wants to make in our personal theology. Do you believe you have perfect theology? That you believe the, the correct way about God and the way he works and his character and, and what he thinks you should and should be doing? Is your theology perfect? No, my theology is not perfect. In fact, I was putting together um, about a year ago, I was compiling all of my messages that I've preached from when I was a youth pastor to now. And as I was going through them, I was reading some of my transcripts of some of my messages as a youth pastor. And as I was reading some of them, I would stop and go, I think, I think this is heresy. I think I was preaching heresy as a youth pastor at times. Uh, my theology has changed in some areas. Thank God. Because God has brought people into my life to show me, a, 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 to reveal something that was hidden in the word of God that I was neglecting or that I didn't see or I didn't think about. And he uses people today in the same way he brings people to us and we're supposed to be open with a, with a heart that's teachable, that says, okay, God, let's, let's go back to the word. I want to hear what this person has to say. I don't want to close off my heart. I don't want to say, no, I've got perfect theology. I'm not changing on anything. Now, I don't want this message to get sticky. I'm, do you hear me? That the authority of Scripture comes first. It's above all. All I'm saying is that our interpretations of Scripture are not perfect in every sense of the, uh, the word or in every, in every way. And so we have to be open to allowing some, God to make some changes to our theology. We have to be open to criticism. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about Stephen's character and how he exhibited both grace and truth. He was winsome and he was radical. And when we read the book of Acts, we can see that living for Jesus, it means becoming winsome radicals. People, people who live with grace and truth. And, and this does not mean that we live both grace and truth in moderation. And we think to ourselves, oh, I don't want to be like too full of truth because I don't want to scare people away. 
and I don't want to be too full of grace because I don't want to, you know, enable them. So I'm going to be 50% truth and 50% grace. No, no, no. We come at this with 100% truth and 100% grace. That we don't shy away from the authority of Scripture. We don't shy away from what the Bible says. But we also don't shy away from sharing it in love with the right motivation. With a heart that says, I am for you. I love you because God loves you. I see your worth. I see your value. I'm not trying to prove to you that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm trying to bring you into a loving encounter with God. And the best way that we do that is we bring 100% grace and 100% truth in every conversation we have with people. So how do we become winsome like Stefan in the midst of trial and persecution? And how do we become radicals in a world of comfort and conformity and apathy, even within the church? That we live in a world where people are comfortable, and that is God. Comfort is God. If you're asking me to do something that's uncomfortable for me, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to step out. I don't want people to think I'm weird. I don't want to take that risk. But listen, Christianity and comfort cannot coexist. Christianity and comfort do not live together. If you are a Christian, you are called to get uncomfortable, to start taking risks, to do things that you haven't done before. So how do we live? How do we become radicals in a world of comfort and conformity? Let's talk first about how Stephen was winsome. If you're faithful to Jesus, he promised, Jesus promised that you would encounter anger and opposition from others outside the church. And that your true worth wouldn't even be recognized by some. So how do we remain winsome in these circumstances? The Bible says that Stephen was a man full of God's grace. And whatever people may do, however severe their sin against you is, we must be able to affirm the supremacy of grace. That grace triumphs over all sin. In 1 Timothy 1.14, it says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And the word, the Greek word here for abundantly, literally translated, means God grace, God's grace superabounds over all sins and situations. That it, 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 it supersedes, it superabounds, it's far greater than all sins and situations. We have to be able to take Romans 8.20. 828 at face value and it says this and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose that even in the midst of trial and persecution in the, even in the midst of hardships we still have a supernatural joy we still have a supernatural supernatural winsomeness about us that says that no matter what I go through I know that God loves me my value comes from him and he's working all things for my good it may not feel good, right? There's a difference between working for your good and working to make you feel good. He does not work to make us feel good all the time, but he works for our good. He does things for us that, that, that are on, he, he's on our side. We've got to be able to say, like Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, he said, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
You intended to hurt me. Those words that you just spoke, that thing that you just did to me, you meant to harm me. But God's going to use even that. And I'm not going to allow that to affect, uh, to affect my winsome attitude. I'm not going to allow that to come against what God has called me to exude. This love and this joy for you. We adopt this grace through intimacy and connection with God. Here's the key, church. That when you have intimacy with God, when you spend time in the presence of the one who is winsome, of the one who is just, he is love. He is joy. He is that. And when you spend time in the presence of joy, it comes on you. And it, steam, it seems that for Stephen, the more vicious his opposition got, the closer his tie was with God. That the more heated the argument got, the closer he got to his death, he began to see the throne room of heaven. And his connection with God was strengthened. And he was even able to forgive his accusers and extend grace as he was being stoned. We must develop the discipline of seeking God and his face first whenever we are attacked so that we can always operate out of an experience of grace. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. My wife and I, we've been in counseling with her family for a few months now. We've been doing some family counseling, just talking about some issues, trying to, trying to iron some things out. We want deeper relationships with our family, and this is a miracle. Our entire family has agreed to go through counseling together. And so we all see the same counselor. We do individual sessions and meet with this counselor, and then we come together as a whole family, and we do family sessions. And we've done probably three or four whole family sessions now. And these conversations get heated, church. They get heated. And when I'm accused of something during these sessions, somebody will come out and say, Blake, you said this to me, or you did this to me, or you act like this, and it hurts me, and I get accused of something. My initial reaction is to get defensive, to get angry, to get accusatory back. Well, yeah, the only reason I acted like this is because you said this, and you did this. And I want to lash out, and I want to feel justified. I want to feel that I'm right. I want them to know how I hurt. And when I don't stop and let them know how I understand how I hurt them, that I feel the way that I hurt you. I know I damaged you. I know I said this, and I shouldn't have. If I don't take that time to stop and recognize that, then no progress is ever made. I have to stop and intentionally have to try and see others the way that God sees them as little children. Imagine how our interactions with one another would be different if we just saw each other as children. That in every angry, cynical person, there is a scared child. There is a child who's craving affection from their father or mother or somebody in their life that did not give it to them. There is a, there is a scared person inside of, every, inside of everybody who lashes out that is fearful, that is insecure. And it comes out in anger. It comes out in, in big ways. And then we see that big person, and we get, we get defensive and angry and argumentative, and we want to lash back out. But if we saw each other the way that God sees us, as little children who are, there's a wound inside, we can have different inter interactions with each other. 
Stephen was winsome because he kept a connection with God, and he saw people the way that God saw people. He was a man full of grace because the grace that was extended to him, that God loved him first, even though he was a sinner, is the same kind of love and grace that we can extend to other people. I'm going to love you first. Even though you don't love me, even though you react harshly against me, I'm going to choose to love you in a way that you haven't been loved because that's what was done to me. That is the love that was shown to me. As we begin to discuss what it means to be radical, let me clarify something. Being winsome, being full of grace and charming and attractive to others does not mean that we're supposed to be tolerant pushovers. You hear me? I've come to realize that my failure at times to get angry over wrong is a reflection of my fallen nature rather than by godliness. You've probably heard someone say, oh, that person is such a saint. They never get angry. That person is such a saint. They, they never get upset. And this is because we've come to value an understanding of tolerance that is far from the biblical lifestyle. That to, to love somebody, to be winsome, means that you have to put up with all the stuff that's going on. And that's just not true. There is a way to be winsome and share 100% truth as well. So let's talk about being radical and how Stefan was radical. Stefan's radicalism had scripture as its source and authority. In the same way, because of the radical nature of God's truth, how many of you know that God's truth is radical? That you read the word of God and you go, this is not what I see in our world. It's very countercultural. It's very... Uh, it's strange to the world. It's radical. But if, because of the radical nature of God's truth, we will become radicals if we take Scripture seriously today. If we live and obey the Word of God, you will naturally become radical. If you do things, and I'm not just talking about the controversial topics. I'm talking, I'm talking about what Jesus says about loving your enemy. That is insane in our world. We are a world torn apart by war, even today. And if we truly believed and lived out Jesus' teachings about loving our enemies, people would see your actions as radical. That person does not live like everybody else. They choose to love even the people that hate them. I want to remind everybody in this room that every person has their own blinds. We all have theological blinds, if we want to be radical, if we want to follow scripture, if we, if we want to obey the word of God and become radical because the word of God is radical, then we have to learn to interpret the word of God correctly. We have to learn to read it correctly. And we all have our own blinds. We have theological blinds. You grew up in a certain household. Maybe you did not come to church as a child. Maybe you did. You, you came from a different denomination. And, and you bring all of those theological blinds into your interpretation of Scripture. I have the same blinds. We all have cultural blinds. The house that you grew up in, the culture you grew up in, it affects how you read the Bible. We have historical blinds. We have political blinds and more. And a genuine interpretation of Scripture helps us to rediscover truths that have been hidden by those blinds. 
And you may think that you already have the correct interpretation of Scripture in many areas, but I would ask you to consider learning from people of other traditions who may not be hampered by the blinds that we have. Now, I'm not saying swing to the other side of the pendulum and start listening to people who are off their rockers. I'm saying there are people that haven't been hampered by your cultural blinds. They haven't been hampered by your theological blinds or your political blinds. And so it might do your theology some good to listen to some other voices in conjunction with the word of God, with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. Uh, A.W. Tozer. Anybody read some A.W. Tozer? Wonderful, wonderful author. He has been instrumental in helping the evangelical church rediscover biblical spirituality and worship. In fact, uh, A.W. Tozer has been instrumental in helping the evangelical church see that, that worship is a means to an end by itself. That worship is not something that's uh, trying to get us somewhere. It's not the introduction to a message. It's not uh, a time for us. It's not just a time for us to come together and sing songs. But, but A.W. Tozer in his writings about worship, if you haven't read any of his writings on worship, he has been instrumental in helping the evangelical church understand that worship in itself is, is a means to an end, that we are all called to just worship the presence of God, to give him glory, to give him honor, not for any other reason, not to get something, but because he is worthy of our praise, that he deserves our praise. And his writings have been instrumental in helping the church understand that. But did you know that A.W. Tozer, much of his inspiration has come from the Roman Catholic spiritual writers, a lot of Roman Catholic spiritual writers, people that are outside of his tradition, Outside of his context, he spent time listening to other voices and understanding a little bit more. And, and, and we were able to, he was able to bring some of that correction into the evangelical church. If we want to become radically obedient to scripture, part of our job as carriers of the gospel is to become biblical contextualizers. What do I mean by that? Stefan contextualized his message by adapting to his audience without toning down his radical nature. That, that he, he, he spoke in a language that the Pharisees would understand by starting with the law of Moses, by, by starting on a foundation that they would know and understand. And today, we have to learn to present the Bible so that our audience understands it. And do so in a way that's relevant to them and grabs their attention. You know, I, I'm trying harder and harder not to use so much Christ, Christianese. It's really hard to get it out of me because I grew up in the church. But when we use uh, hyper-spiritual language in, in, a, in a setting of people who do not go to church and we're trying to share Jesus with them. When we use hyper-spiritual language and words that are just, you only see in the New King James Version. Let me tell you, that's not relevant, and people don't know how to connect with that. But we become, we become all things to all people. We, we, we adapt our message so that our message of Jesus, it doesn't change. The message of Jesus does not change. It's the same message, but we present it in a way that is relevant and that in a way that they can understand it. Some of us may have to ask God to help us with that. Lord, take away my Christianese. I don't know how to talk about some things without using big words fancy King James Version words. Lord, help me, help me filter those out. Give me a new way to present the gospel to people. 
I'm going to ask Mary to come up, and we're going to close pretty soon. I want to come back to, uh, to something that we read in the Bible. When you read this account of Stephen's murder, you see that there are many first-person descriptions of Stephen's face and the reactions of the Pharisees. They use words like, his face was like that of an angel. And the Pharisees gnashed their teeth, and they became angry. Someone who was there, at this event is describing the story in detail, but Luke, the author of Acts, was not at this event. Luke was not there. So Luke is documenting this event from the account of somebody else who was present. Well, who was present at this event? Paul. Saul was approving of Stephen's murder. They were dropping coats at his feet as they went to stone him, as was the custom. And Saul, who would later become Paul, approved of this murder. And many scholars believe that at some point, Paul would have got together with Luke, and Luke would have said, all right, tell me what happened to Stephen. You were there. Can you imagine Paul's, the tone of his voice, as he told the story of a man that had the face of an angel, even though he was being stoned. Paul was hell-bent on capturing and imprisoning followers of Jesus. He made it his mission. People at the church was terrified. When they found out that Paul got saved, when they found out that this guy got saved, they were like, well, don't bring him around here. Like, we don't know if it's genuine. They were afraid of him. But Paul... You have to imagine that watching this moment of Stephen being stoned, you can imagine it would have had a huge impact on him, even as an unbeliever at the time. He would have told Luke, I watched a man get stoned to death, but on his face there was no anger and there was no hate. There was compassion and there was forgiveness. And he even said that he forgave them as he died. I watched a man get stoned, and there wasn't any fear. There was peace. And he saw the throne room of heaven. He was full of the Spirit. He was full of wisdom, even as he died. When the world, when, the, when, when, when people who don't know Jesus yet, when they see somebody who is winsome and radical, it changes their life. It gives them something to look at that they've never seen before. And I can imagine that after this event, Paul probably, Saul, when he was Saul, before he became Paul, he probably went home, laid his head on the pillow, and Stephen's face probably haunted his night, probably haunted his mind for nights and nights on end. He probably thought to himself, what was up with that guy? There was something about him. Because even years later, when he's describing it to to, to Luke, he's able to say, his face was like that of an angel, Luke. He was full of the spirit and wisdom. He saw the throne room of heaven when people were stoning him to death. That's the impact that we can have on the world when we live winsome and radical. When we do, when we hold grace and truth in tension with one another, not 50% grace, because you know, you don't want to be too enabling. You don't want people to feel too loved. Because then, you know, I might 
deter them from the gospel. You don't want to be too much truth because you don't want to scare them away. You don't want to say something that's going to offend them. No, when you are 100% truth and you tell them the story of Jesus without holding anything back, but you also are 100% grace and you show them all the love and the compassion that you have, it changes people's lives. How can we become winsome? How can we become radical? Are you radical? Do you believe 100% what the Bible says? Do you live it out? Do you obey it? Do you share it with people? Are you winsome? I think the, there's a lot of people in the church that are cynical and angry. They're bitter. They hold grudges. And I think a lot of people outside look inside this church building and they see people who are gung-ho with the truth. They don't show love very well. They don't show compassion very well. And that needs to change. We can be winsome and be radical. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us how to be that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in this place. We know that when we live the way that you want us to live, you designed us to live, it changes lives. Teach us how to be completely abandoned to Scripture, completely sold out to Scripture. Teach us how to obey it, to live it out to its fullest extent, to not shy away from some of the truth, but Lord, also in the same hand, teach us to be full of joy, to be attractive and appealing to the world around us, that we'd share our faith in a way that's not off-putting or angry, but people would see that as we share the truth of them, we genuinely love them. God, there's a way to do it. We need your Holy Spirit in order to do that. I thank you, Lord, that you showed us that love first, that you loved us even when we were your enemies. We were sinners, and you still came for us. You still loved us. Help us walk with that truth so we can show it to other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church. We'll see you next Sunday. I remind you that We've got grow class next Sunday, so uh, please sign up for grow class, show up. I'd love to see you there.